This is Comic Geek Speak, episode 1577, Top 5 Annuals. I'm Shane Kelly. I'm Adam Murdo. And I'm Chris Eberly. Manually fading out, which is a new, we used to have it that it would infinity and <laughs> shut itself off, but now I manually turned it down. It just fine, sir. Oh, yes. <laughs> really going old school, downgrading a bit tonight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I got to tell you, on my end, it sounds even more old school because it kind of sounds like a uh, fuzzy old homemade VHS recording than me. <laughs> Then you must feel especially comfy then, brother. Oh, right at home, Chris. <laughs> and I feel right at home being back in the studio after a couple of weeks. As yeah, even me. I haven't been here, in, been here in, in a month. A month? Easily. At least a month, you'd say? Yeah, something like that. Well, it's an honor to see you, my friend. <laughs> you too. Indeed. Indeed. All right. But first, we have a new sponsor. Gosh darn it, I just lost a comeback here. Darn webpage. There we are. New sponsor, Geek Fuel. That's geekfuel.com. You can... What they are is they provide a mystery box full of goodies, comic book geeky goodies. There's a $50 value guaranteed in each and every box. There's exclusive T-shirts, games, collectibles, um, stickers, the T-shirts we said, um, sometimes books like regular novel type books. Uh, One of the examples on their website has Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park in there. So lots of good geeky stuff. Um, you can sign up for a month at a time, a three months at a time, six-month plan, or a year plan. And the price decreases with each iteration of an increase of, uh, of months. Um, and then once a month, you get a shipment, and inside is all sorts of geeky stuff. Now, we have two examples in the studio here. I'm going to go with this one because I... Very well. I would... I'll go with this one. All right. Um, I actually opened them up once already. <laughs> So inside, uh, the first one is a uh, Boba Fett-type T-shirt, and I'm holding oh, it up wow. so Murd can see on the camera. Boba Fett? Boba Fett. <laughs> Where? It's a, it's a small, so there's no way that's going to fit me these days. Um, there's also, let's see, uh, nailed it kind of fancy uh, nail coverings, like you press on it's girls, press on nails. for her? Um, this one has features different hero masks at the very tip. So when girls put it on their fingernails, the little masks will be at the tip of the fingernail. Um, there is a poster. Let's see what the poster is. It is, oh, from the new Star Wars and a picture of Kylo Kylo Ren. Ren. That looks pretty cool. That'll be a little tiny segue into something in a little bit. Indeed. And uh, let's see, Bob's Burger Geek Fuel exclusive cover. Huh. All right, that's pretty cool. Is that issue number one? That is. It doesn't say, just says Geek Fuel. This copy? No, I do not see a number on it. Maybe it's a preview. It could be number one, though. Huh. Mer, do you watch Geek? Do you watch that? Uh, as often as I can, yeah. They have uh, nightly reruns on Adult Swim these days. And a pin, Ares 11. Do you know what that's from? That one I don't Ares. know what's from. Ares uh, 11? Wait, wait, hold on. That's from, uh, may I see that? That's yep. from uh, The Martian. 
Ah. Because it says Watney on it. Okay. Oh, right. The right. Man these, yeah. these, these are the astronauts. By the way, that was a great movie. I didn't get to see it's it. Outstanding. I actually want to read the book. Yeah, I've heard the book is excellent, and the, the movie was excellent. I'm so poor on my books. And in this one, I know because I took it home because I want to try it, is a Doctor Who ice tray. That was in this That box was in this well? box. Tardises and Daleks. So then you can <laughs> pour water in, freeze them, and then pop them out. Uh, I think that'd be great for mixed drinks. Because... So all that was in the box for $50 value. Yep. Not bad. Yeah, that was cool. Go ahead and open the other all one. All right, we got a second one So here. a second one, and that just came. I just looked at that one as I got to the studio this time. Actually, why don't we save this one for where we're going to oh, do another okay. promo yeah, spot later absolutely. on. Yeah, we'll do that. That sounds show. good. So all there right. you go. That's geekfuel.com. Go there, check them out. Sign up for their mystery boxes and uh, get some cool stuff. And we'll revisit them later on uh, in the episode. Excellent. All right, before we get to our annuals, and we're all in accord here. I felt compelled that we had to discuss, at least for a few minutes, the Star Wars trailer that premiered yeah. this past Monday during Monday Night Football during halftime. Um, for me, I've since watched, I'd say, probably at least 50 times. I'm about 10, 12 maybe. And here, here's the thing, and I'm sure many listeners can, can will be able to empathize with this. When I saw this trailer, I literally wept with excitement. Did you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because... The way the trailer was concocted, the way they applied the music, and it's it just just because we all grew up, especially oh, yeah. you and I, Shane, right yeah. when those original movies came out, and just to see Han Solo, and to hear him talk about, it's all true. Yeah, the Jedi, all the of Dark it. Force. I mean, there were tears in my eyes because, and I could be totally. Off base about this. I'm just going with my gut. Yeah, yeah. I, I, my, I feel this movie is going to be tremendous. Oh, I think so too. Because, and I could be wrong, but it's J.J. Abrams, who I've yet to be disappointed with in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Um, you've got Lawrence Kasdan, who was involved in writing both The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. So that's. Oh wow. That's very you know that's encouraging as well, and. It's got the original characters in it. it yeah. It, it's. It, it, I, all th- there's been three trailers now, correct? Yes. yes. And I've really reveled in each one. And the third one, the one that just re- premiered, really affected me the most. Um, like I said, I, I was and and my uh, dear old friend Ryan, he he wept. I, I mean, Dan from Pittsburgh, you know, tears. Uh, I just feel like. If these trailers live up to, to the expectations that this is going to be a tremendous experience, plus from, a, as, from an actor's no, – well, I'm not an actor, but for someone who appreciates actors, the actor Oscar Isaac, who is playing the X-Wing pilot. Okay. He is a tremendous actor. He was an Inside Lewin Davis. He was in another great movie called um, – um, oh, what the hell is it? Oh, crap. Um, it's, he plays like a guy running like a, a – a, oil heating company in New York in 1980 and, and the politics of that. Um, I, I'm just brain for the name. Forgive me. I have to look it up. But uh, he's a great actor. He also can sing like like this nobody's business. Really? So huh. um, I, I'm really excited um, that he's involved in this film because I just think he's a great actor. So I, I, I cannot wait. I already have my tickets. Ryan, who never fails, got preview seats 7 p.m. December 17th. Nice. In our local mall, which has one of the like those dinner theaters, they bring you the food oh, yeah, and yeah, all yeah. that. So our seats are reserved. We don't have to wait online. Uh, nothing like that. So, oh, a most violent year. That's the other 
Oscar Isaac film. But um, okay. what did you guys think of this trailer? Well, I think for for the first time in a long time, this was a great example of a trailer that gave absolutely nothing away. I mean, this absolutely. is a trailer in the purest sense of, of filmmaking where it was great to see some expanded things that you didn't see in the first two little clips. But you still know absolutely nothing about what's going on or who's really who. I mean, other than the character names, you really have no idea about the plot at all. And that's great. Um, I, don't want, I don't want to know. No, and it was huh. just fantastic. Um, I loved how they used the subtlety of the original music very quietly, slowed down in the background in, in a remembrance kind of way. As the Falcons dipping down well, and the TIE Fighters chasing. You know chasing. when I got the tears? When Han spoke, and then when they have the Falcon being pursued by TIE Fighters through like that graveyard of yep, that Star Destroyer. Ships, yep, yep. I was like, oh, I mean, and then it goes, goes into hyperspace. And, well, you know, and that that hyperspacing in particular was kind of neat because that was a new perspective. You don't see things that's true. come that's a good at point. you. That's a good point. You see it yeah. from behind yeah. or in the cockpit. You've never yeah. seen it just kind of start the blue circle cylindrical yeah. thing and you, you watch it go by you that's yeah. i mean that was kind of just a cool effect to see a different perspective um no i i'm i'm really jazzed i really really liked it um and again most of it you saw somewhat in the other trailers just very shortened versions yes. or very similar times that these these scenes were happening like it they what they've shown you is really very little of the entire movie and i i just think it looks fantastic adam what were your thoughts uh, honestly chris i didn't have all that many um okay. i watched it uh, <laughs> during halftime i watched it again when they re-aired it after the game i was really more interested in the eagles beating the giants at the time um and uh well it was, it was a bit with Han Solo, uh, well, confirming that it was all true, all of it, was uh, kind of a breathtaking moment. <laughs> Although afterwards I saw a meme on Facebook showing uh, Han Solo's image saying, it's true, all of it, and then a shot of the female character he's talking to saying, even the part about Guido <laughs> shooting first. <laughs> I saw that. I did so see that. Saying, get out. <laughs> yeah, that, that was funny. That's funny. Um, so yeah, and the scene of Han embracing Leia and Leia weeping softly, that was kind of chilling. And, uh, the image of, uh, somebody wielding a Sith lightsaber with, uh, a couple of smaller little laser shafts coming out at hilt level, that's, uh, that's, that's an image. Um, I continue to be in agreement with Brian Deemer that it's a great thing that they actually built, yes. um, oh, my gosh, a yeah. physical prop Absolutely. for that, yeah. uh, well, for most things, but, but especially for that uh, spherical droid. Did you, either of you happen to know what that thing is called? BB-8. BB-8. Yeah. All right, thank you. Robot, oh, yeah. Right? Yep. Yeah. That's, a, that's a practical it's effect. Very, um, yep, not computer-generated, or at least not entirely. No, no. Uh, and uh, the, the, the monologue the superimposed over the scenes by the, uh, the controversial Black Stormtrooper, who is uh, causing the film to draw criticism from certain quarters that the film is anti-white, which I don't think we should dignify with any further discussion. No, not at all. Um, uh, but uh, what, what, that, uh, what, what his words give away is that uh, he, he's complaining that he's been trained to do one thing, and suddenly you know, the, the, the purpose in life that uh, well, the Empire gave him has been uh, yanked out from under him. So, so it sounds like this movie is going to give us... Uh, well, more than just uh, the heroic empire, uh, the, the heroic rebellion versus uh, the, uh, the the evil empire. I think I think uh, the shades of gray are going to be a little more well, present in Murda, this trilogy. I, I, I think you're right because 
based on the trailers, and I, I have a few things have been leaked. I won't talk about them on the air in case people don't want to hear them. Um, a little bit about the Kylo Ren character, for example, um, who, who, the actor Adam Driver, who's outstanding, by the way, is playing him. Um, but I, I agree with you, Murda. I get the sense that, and, and it, it's as it should be, because it's 2015, and the original Star Wars films were clearly heavily influenced by the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Lucas even used the dogfights, dogfights yeah. as, as fill-in footage before he got the special effects in there when he aired it for like Spielberg and some of his, his peers. Yeah. Um, th- I think this movie, and I, and I hope they do it because I think Star Wars is more than capable of handling this. Is there's always one more than one perspective on on these issues, and we we can't automatically assume everything the Republic did after the fall of the Empire was a good thing. And we also have to think about, okay, the empire was so vast, if it suddenly collapses, what does that mean for the whole universe? Because now yeah. there's no order, essentially. And if the, the, as huge as the empire was, did it even, all of it even collapse for that matter? Um, so these are questions I'm really looking forward to seeing. Now, they're exploring that in some of the comics that are coming out sure. now. Um, like the Greg Rucka Shattered Empire, which is excellent. And uh, there's been some books I haven't read. But I agree with you, Murray. I, I think... And knowing how J.J. Abrams and the way he works, uh, I'm anticipating that's the way they're going to go with it. Um, And I I think it should be the way they go with it because as difficult as it was, in one sense, winning the war was the easy thing. Now you have to govern. And that's a whole other ball of wax, so to speak. Um, The other thing that I really loved about this trailer, you barely see Luke at all. Yeah. And you know that's him with the metal hand because you saw that in the previous trailer. Mm -hmm. And... I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, A, he's barely in the movie, and, two, when you do see him, it has just has enormous significance and consequence. Yeah. And, um, that, and, and that's why I, I kind of wonder if he's not going to be in it much in the first one. And I have my own theories about what may or may not be happening with him. And I don't – like you, I don't want right. to – I won't say it on there in case somebody doesn't want to even think that. And God forbid it would actually come true, which would blow my mind. But um, there's a lot of interesting ways this could turn – for every character, and I'd be happy with any of them because it just, just like you said, just the way J.J. Abrams works his movies and his directing, the fact that they went to such lengths to go on um, on location, practical effects, building, well, to uh, make it look like the original film, yeah, to sense. make yeah. it to make it look real, yeah, as real as possible, and yeah, there's computer effects in it. I mean, you're you're going to have that. Um, the, the only thing somebody made a comment. When um, I think it's Kylo Ren is on the the bridge of a ship, I assume a, Death Star, a Star Destroyer of some kind, and there's a lens flare in the background. <laughs> like, oh God, let's not go Star Trek lens flare. But you know, that's just a, a good joke that I had a good guffaw about. And the other thing is that just the subtitle alone, "The Force Awakens," yeah, leads you to believe that maybe the Force has kind of oh yeah left the universe. Oh yeah, I um, I think Luke's going to be a part of that. In, whether it happens with my theory or not, I think him and one or two of the characters we've seen in these trailers are going to what what awakens it. Well, in Star Wars mythology, when when someone says "I'm no one," you know right away that there's oh yeah, that, that they mean everything. Like yeah. they're enormously significant to yep. the story. Yep. So um, yeah, just I wanted to talk about it a few minutes because I'm sure many of our listeners have watched it. Sure. And I can't wait to review it when when, we, when we've all seen it. Um, now I haven't gotten tickets yet. Um, because again, I don't necessarily know what my schedule is that weekend. I know Ben's already got a game yeah. at some point in that yeah. weekend, so I didn't want to buy something and then not be able to go. 
but I'm off the week of Christmas with them, so I'm going to definitely take them oh, yeah. that week. Um, well, maybe by then tickets will be available. Well, yeah, and I'm sure <laughs> at some at some point in the first few days to a week, I will get there yeah. at some point. It's just a matter of when. Because the last time I um, I went to a big movie premiere, gosh, what was it? Maybe Avengers? I think it was Avengers. We went to the Reading Fox that's up here, yeah. and they were sold out of both shows. And he said, well, you know, two or three days before the, sh- the movie comes out, we're going to open up more theaters. And I can't imagine they're not going to do that. Oh, are you kidding me? Um, this will probably be, this will probably break all records. Oh, I think so. The license to print money. Yeah. yeah. And I think, look, I revere George Lucas as a visionary. Mm-hmm. Um, he he contributed enormously to all of our childhoods. Yeah. And and what he did, uh, in many ways, revolutionized filmmaking. Yeah. Um, and some would argue some of that has turned out to be a negative, but for me, no, I don't think so. Well, some some people don't like the whole blockbuster and all that. That whole that's a whole other discussion. But yeah. um, I I revere what he's done. Um, having said that, the newer films I, I refer to the painful balcony love scene, Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> yeah, you're beautiful. Was... No, you're so beautiful. Do you mean love is blind? Yeah, right. that was bad. He <laughs> and I say this with the greatest respect for them, but he lost the ability to write dialogue. So I'm grateful that, about, that the people who are involved in this are people who have a proven track record. Yeah. And not just telling a compelling story and all the great adventure, but also having going deep into characterization and making that just as compelling as, you know, ships blowing up and so forth. And I like that it's more unknowns than knowns top billing the cast. Well, I that's, mean, that's, good. that's tradition. That's yeah. what the original Star Wars was built on. Did. And, and so, there was... Some of that for the newer movies, but and I liked some of them. You know, Ewan McGregor's Obi Wan is, oh, is I, my I'd lo- favorite. I hope, I hope they do an Ewan McGregor oh, Obi Wan. I movie. do too. I would love to see. God, that. what a fantastic thing that would be. Um, but I think this is a, a better way to go. Uh, it it really looks like he went back to what worked with the first trilogy and really is trying to do as much in that well, regard. And, and not well, not to get too much of a tangent here, but just. I think what always worked for me, especially as I got older, and I think we've all seen this movie so many times now, is that mm-hmm. at the core of the original movies, there's those relationships between Leia and Han and Luke and Chewbacca and the droids and later Lando and, you know, and the humor. The humor was so important in the original films. You didn't have a lot of that in, in the newer ones. No. And, you know, that... And, and, and the gravity of, of what was going on. And, and you know, and the latter part of Revenge of the Sith, I thought that, that some of that gravity kind of returned, at least mm-hmm. for me. Oh, yeah. Um, but Star Wars is epic. And the trick is you, you want to have this mythical, colossal epic that's ongoing, but you don't want to lose the, the character moments. And I yeah. think the newer films lost a lot of that. Um, and I, and I, knowing J.J. Abrams' track record, both on television and film, I'm confident we're going to have that again. Yeah. And I want to see why is Leia upset, you know? Yeah. You know, you, you want to see what's going on with Luke. You know, this first order, did the Empire never really dissolve? You know, these are all exciting questions that I can't wait to see. Yeah. Why does C-3PO have a red arm? You know? I know. These are all exciting <laughs> and questions. And he hasn't even been in, in, in yeah. any of the trailers I saw yet. stills of that, but, you know. Yeah. Um, so, to be continued when the movie uh, comes out. What's that? Oh. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, technical issue there. <laughs> All right. Anybody yeah. other comments on uh, the trailer? I, I showed Ben, and um, 
right away he knew what I was showing him because he knew it aired the night before. Yeah. But I said, you know, hey, sit down here and watch this with me. And he got excited. He got really excited. Um, so that was kind of cool to see because I took them to see the 3D Phantom Menace solely because I wanted them to have the experience of seeing a yeah, Star Wars I, I movie in the theater. Phantom Menace anymore. Well, it, <laughs> and, and I, I understand but that movie really is more geared for them when I took them to see it. I mean, they were five years ago, four that, years sure, ago or something. Yeah. Very much more a kid film. And they loved it. But what they loved more than the film, because they'd seen it before, was seeing it in a theater. They're like, yeah. wow, that was really cool. I wanted them to have that experience. So if, if they never did any – because back then, who knew that this they were, would come about? They were to do all of them in 3D. Right. They, and then that all that. Yeah. scrapped, which is fine. Um, and they'll get this experience now that it's going to be here. But – that that was still fun to give you know, them that and back Ryan then. Ryan and I were talking about a little bit of Everly history here. When the movie came out originally, A New Hope, or Murder and I always say it's just Star Wars back then. Yeah, but, right, right. It um, is. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, yeah. The, I was four years old. Um, Ryan was three. And either was that or – because they, they re-released it multiple the, times. They re-released it the following year to I, coincide more with the toys. It, it may have been the next year we saw That's it. That's when I saw Probably it. the next year. I, it's, it's kind of fuzzy in my mm-hmm. memory. But Me too. Ryan was saying, all right, remember when our parents took us? Now we're going to take our kids. Yeah. And that's – that, you know, is meaningful and emotional to oh, me. Oh, gosh, yeah. You know, we're going to have that experience. And one more comment because I think Murd made such a great point before about the shades of gray. You get the impression that – um, we're gonna. They're gonna explore with uh, the, the 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 young man. I forgot the name of the actor who's playing uh, the stormtrooper. Oh, I just know um, his character's name is Finn. Finn. Okay. What does it mean to be a stormtrooper? Because they're called upon to commit horrific atrocities. Yeah. So, are we gonna get into a situation where this guy's like, I just can't do this anymore? Right. Uh, I'm interested to see where they're gonna go with that because, you know, in the original films, they're the Cool looking guys who can't really can't shoot straight yeah. and yeah. or hit well anything. Cannon fire yeah. Is yeah. What yeah, yeah. But, you know, but I've always I've always been interested in like the foot soldier, like how have they been indoctrinated, like why do they do what they do? They must believe in what they're doing, and you know they're not clones. Right, we right. know that by the by the, the original films, it's there might be some clones, but it's yeah. just regular men essentially yeah. by so, that time. Um. Really looking forward to see how how they explore that. Yeah, so this should be a lot of fun. I can't wait. All right, all right. Top five annuals. Top five annuals. Top five annuals. Now I do have mine ranked. I know sometimes we rank them, sometimes we don't. I have mine ranked, so I'll read them. My choices off five to one. That's what I was going to do. Okay. All right. How Murd. about you, Murd? Yeah. Well, mine are uh, really more in chronological order, I'd say, than in order of preference. But, okay. Uh, yeah, I'm going to count them back from the most recent to the uh, the oldest. Okay. Shane, why don't you start us off? All right. Uh, my first one is the Batman Annual Number 10, a Hugo Strange story written by Doug Munch, penciled by Denny B. Cohen. Inker was Alfredo Acala, A-L-C. Oh, great artist. Oof. A-L-C-A-L-A. Um, this I remember as being my very first Batman annual. Now, I have another annual in there that is the first annual that I got um, that's in my top five. But this was the very first Batman annual I got. Um, And to see a character like Hugo Strange, who I didn't know at that time. I mean, this came out uh, back in 1986. So I I knew Joker, Penguin, Riddler. I knew the big ones. Um, 
it was an interesting, fun read, very well drawn, very well written. I mean, Doug Monks, Monks is is great. Um, but I remember wondering, all right, Hugo Strange, I don't get it. But then later years, as I grew grew up and read more Batman and learned about Hugo Strange, to then go back and reread that annual at some point uh, was a lot of fun. Uh, just a great annual. When an annual was unique, important, it wasn't just an event. You're touching on one of the themes I'm going to be talking yeah. about a lot in this episode. And, and that's a huge thing through through all of my annuals for the most part is uh, I think one or two are an event, but not not like events today where the annuals run events in a lot of ways. And some of them have been good, don't get me wrong. I, I've enjoyed a lot of um, annuals that were events. But, but back, back in this day, back in the mid to late 80s, when I really started to read and collect comics, I really loved the standalone single annual that was just a great story because it was an annual. Now, did... So you had the pleasurable experience of returning to elementary childhood, but the story then still held up for you as an adult. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That yeah. doesn't always happen. So no. That's, that's and, great. and part of that just be my own nostalgia. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm very guilty of if something's nostalgic to me, I'll love it a little bit more, whether it's great or not in somebody else's eyes. But, yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. And that, that cover with the full-figured Batman cl- uh, cape draped around about. him, yeah. um, Hugo Strange kind of shattered in the background a little bit, just his head. It, it, just a neat cover, neat colors too, purple and blue. Not not normal type colors for annuals. The very eighties ish. I mean, it, it was middle of the eighties, but it, that, that's a lot of fun for me to to go back. Now I don't think I have that annual anymore. I, I really need to dig that out. Um, I just knew which ones I wanted to pick for this. I didn't go dig them out from my collection. Indeed, that'd been monstrous. Murd, how about you? All right. Um, okay, so my first pick is from the 90s. Actually, I, I do find that uh, just about everything I have on my list here is actually from the 80s and 90s. Um, I, I have not a single thing that's older than 1981. And, you know, I, I really would say, just uh, personally, my observation, I, I would call the 80s and 90s kind of like the golden age of annuals in comic books. Yes. I mean, obviously, annuals existed well before that. Uh, you know, there were annuals being printed in the 60s and 70s, although, you know, in the early days, they were as they were as likely as not to be just reprint volumes, That's although there true. were some original stories. Um, but then we get into the eighties and nineties. The publishers, especially the big two, uh, kind of uh, cottoned to the fact that, uh, uh, that this was an opportunity to print uh, additional material. And uh, you know, rake in some money uh, on their popular series. You know, so that's uh, all of a sudden in the eighties, uh, mainstay series that had never had annuals before uh, began having them. And um, then eventually we get into the uh, the era in the nineties when uh, we would have annual crossovers and uh, theme annuals across the entire line. And I, and I think that's what you were sort of speaking against there, Shane, when you say you preferred a story like Batman Annual Number Ten that was just a standalone and not a part of any kind of a crossover. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, so uh, just about all the annuals I have, though, are from uh, the, the, that uh, so, sort of 20-year span when uh, annuals were a big thing. You know, they're, they're not quite as uh, common in comics these days, although they do still pop up. Sure. I don't have any in my list from the 2000s, though. Um, and the first one I have, I wanted to make sure I had something on my list that was not from the big two, even though uh, it's uh, Marvel and DC are the ones that have done the most publishing of annuals over the years. Um, but the one that I have for my number five is uh, a bongo bit of business. Uh, it's the Radioactive Man 80-page Colossal nice. from the, the summer of 1995. <laughs> I remember... <laughs> 
I was 16 when this came out, and I can remember reading it in the backseat of my parents' minivan, driving home from one of our many, many trips to Stone Harbor on a very warm, uh, probably July afternoon. And it's, uh, it's you know, like, like all Radioactive Man comics from Bongo, it's a, a loving parody of uh, the uh, creative values of co- superhero comics of a past era. And in this case, it's the... Uh, the 1960s, and specifically DC in the 1960s, because 80-page Colossal is pretty clearly patterned after the 80-page Giants that DC used to do. Uh, the cover date is... Um, you know, I'm having a hard time... I'm, I'm looking at an image of it on my computer screen. I, I, I can't quite make it out, but it's summer of 1968, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's really summer of 1995. Right, right. It's offering uh, five atomic tales... And, uh, you know, it, it, it's modeled on the old 80-page giants, which oftentimes were reprints of uh, older DC inventory material that uh, was uh, – sometimes they were selected because they were all of a common theme. Like maybe there'd be an 80-page Superman giant that was all about kryptonite stories, or there'd be a story about uh, magic-powered char- – an 80-page giant that focused on magic-powered characters. Um, there really isn't a common theme to the 80-page colossal radioactive man, but uh, all five stories are actually – I mean, they're presented as re- as if they were reprinted from earlier, never actually printed issues of Radioactive Man. They're all original stories. And uh, Bill Morrison, that bongo stalwart that he was, uh, had a hand in almost all of them, whether writing, penciling, or doing both. Um, and, uh, there is one story in there that's by Scott Shaw of uh, the Captain Carrot fame. Uh, that one was probably my favorite. It was the 1001 Faces of Radioactive Ape. <laughs> uh, yes, Radioactive Man did have a friend who lived in his universe's version of Gorilla City. And uh, it, it's basically Radioactive Ape going through a bunch of bizarre red kryptonite-style transformations, including into a bizarro Radioactive Ape. Uh, I think he was called Factory Irregular Radioactive Ape, though. Uh, then there's a Radioactive Man Teen Idol, in which a Radioactive Man picks up a guitar and makes like the Beatles. Uh, to Betroth, a foe, in which uh, Radioactive Man marries Larva Girl. This is a story that was actually referenced on the episode of The Simpsons, which introduced Radioactive Man as a concept. <laughs> Gloria Grand, Radioactive Girl, Gloria Grand being the uh, news hen girlfriend of, uh, or would-be girlfriend of Radioactive Man, his, his version of Lois Lane. Um, the first appearance of Glowy, the Radioactive Dog. And who is the Radioactive Man of the Fantastic our future world of 1995. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just really great silver agey fun, and that's it. I have always loved the things that they do with the with the radioactive man characters. It's a vehicle for genre parody at Bongo, and especially when Bill Morrison was involved. And, yeah. and since he's he's been focusing his attention elsewhere, the stuff they've done with Radioactive Man hasn't been quite as good. But this is just a Big old juicy chunk of uh, the of the best radioactive man material that Bongo ever published, as far as I'm concerned. So, yep, um, it, it wasn't properly an annual, I suppose, because it wasn't attached to any kind of ongoing series. But it's sort of an an addendum to uh, the Radioactive Man six issue miniseries that had been published the year before. So, um, yeah, as usual, our uh, our parameters for uh, you know, what counts as an annual and what doesn't are going to be fairly uh, loosey-goosey, <laughs> yeah. and then more or less anything goes. But as far as I'm concerned, this this counts as an annual as much as anything, and I loved reading it when I was 16. So threw that in there as my non-Big 2 entry in my top five. Nice. Bravo, Mert. Bravo. Chris. All right. Uh, 
I, I love the, the, the idea of this topic because growing up, like, like Murd said, uh, and I agree with him, annuals became a re- sort of like anchors for the companies in the 1980s and 90s. I sure. Mean, they used them for a lot of their events, some more effective than others, of course, in terms of quality and whatnot. But um, I loved I, – I know Jamie D would probably say the same thing. Love when the annuals would come out. Oh, yeah. Um, and <laughs> – Sometimes I enjoyed when they anchored a crossover. Other times, like you said, I just loved a great standalone story by top flight creators that added just a wonderful new dimension to whoever the character in question uh, is. Um, And I also loved annuals where huge things happened. Mm -hmm. Like you read this and you're like, wow, this is a major development in this character's history. Yeah. Um, It gave weight to it. Yeah, and that's... And, you know, there are just as many annuals that were throwaways, and I, I was just like, okay, this is a waste of however many dollars I spent on it. Um, but in general, I've always loved the annual concept, and as Merge said, you know, they're scattershot today. Sometimes they do them, uh, sometimes they don't. Uh, some characters, I, I can't even think of it the last time they had an annual. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know if that's because of printing costs or whatever the reasons might be. Um, but... The annuals always have a special place in my heart. And some of the some of the first comics I ever owned as a kid were annuals, mm-hmm. because and I'm sure Jamie D would say the same thing. You know, it's thicker. You got more. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and you know, you were willing to spend a little extra money to get that. So um, I've been looking forward to discuss this topic. Now, for me, my fifth choice is actually a recent annual. Cool. Most of mine are much older, um, but when we when I was thinking of my list, this book popped in my head immediately because it blew me away. All right, it's from 2010, hmm. Invincible Iron Man Annual Number 1, written by Matt Fraction, uh, with pencils by Carmine, uh, forgive me if I, I'm probably going to maul this, Diamanico. <laughs> I totally mauled that, I'm sorry. Um, it is a Mandarin-centered story. In fact, if I remember correctly, I don't think Tony Stark even appears in it. Oh, wow. um, and the whole premise is the Mandarin kidnaps a famous filmmaker, and he wants him to make a movie of his life. And because the Mandarin has been alive for however long and is so mysterious, there's so many different versions of what is the Mandarin's history. And the story explores who the Mandarin might be and who he might have been. It's so well done. Um, in some cases, it's darkly funny. In other cases, it's horrifying. Um, but Fraction really gives real heft to the Mandarin and his place in the moral of the universe and who he might or might not be and where he may or may not have come from, hmm. essentially. And uh, I don't know. It's probably reprinted in a trade somewhere. Um, again, this is attached to what I consider Fraction's outstanding run on Iron Man. Um, but if this is an annual you ever get, can get your hands on or whichever trade it's reprinted in, highest recommendation uh when i read this i went ah, this is an annual this is what an annual should be all right I'm... it takes a, a, a an existing character concept but it spins in a totally new direction and, and just adds so much that's new to your understanding of that character or huh. that concept i know uh, i didn't read that annual. one that sounds great yeah it, it's it's darkly funny it's creepy it's horrifying if you're a Mandarin fan, if you just want to see an interesting take on a supervillain, grab this annual. Has the Mandarin been used much in Iron Man's newer runs the last few years? I have to be honest. 
after I love Fractions Run, and the Mandarin has definitely had a role in Fractions okay. Run. When they relaunched Iron Man for the however many times yeah. um, a couple of years ago, I read the first few. I thought it was very flat, and I have so many books I try to read every month that I just dropped it. I have not read the Superior Iron Man. No, I haven't. Either. And I, 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 wait, I we, we, we missed an order, so I'm waiting to get issue one of, of the new Iron Man by Bendis, which I have high hopes for. Um, but uh, I don't know about I don't know about how the Mandarin was used after the Fraction run. He was definitely the frac. If you're an Iron Man fan, you have to read the Matt Fraction of Iron Man. It's it's as good as any Iron Man ever done, as far as I'm concerned. I think it's about ten trades or so, and they did okay. a couple hardcovers too. It's awesome. Hmm. Highest recommendation. All right, uh, for the number fours, Murd, why don't you go first? Okay. Uh, number four for me, um, I'm actually going to return to the year 1995. Um, this is an annual, it's, um, it, it's kind of a nostalgic favorite for me, you know, rather than the you know, objective quality of the material. But it's, it's, it's from the uh, uh, post-crisis Superboy series, you know, the, the 90s Superboy, the clone. Um, uh, the series that began in 1994, and it's the second annual. Uh, it's a part of a, one of those, you know, not really a crossover, but it's a line-wide annual theme, which DC did every year for pretty much every year in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, Shane, do you remember uh, several months ago, Shane, when Pants challenged us to name yes, every Yes, I do. <laughs> yep, I think I got one, maybe two. You got all of them. Yeah, you came in and uh, you were my lifeline at the end because I could not remember Planet DC from 2000. Yep. But, but yeah, between you the two the, of us, we got all of them. You had the run of the board for every last <laughs> other <course>. one. <laughs> and Pants is kicking himself ever since that he didn't have the mics on as he asked us to do that. Yeah, that was that was a, that was a fun few minutes. <laughs> Well, what DC was doing in 1995 was a series of year one annuals telling little um, early career and or origin stories for various characters, uh, whether go- whether in flashback form or just uh, stories set in the prison that revealed new details, uh, hitherto unknown, about different characters' origins. And uh, the clone Superboy, in his second annual, uh, which was written by uh, the, the Kiesels, Carl and Barbara, uh, with uh, pencils by someone named Dave Brewer, his work I don't uh, really know beyond this. Um, but it's uh, the clone Superboy uh, having an adventure with, uh, well, the clone uh, Newsboy Legion. Uh, you know, those classic uh, Kirby creations who were cloned, um, you know, that their adult selves uh, went to work for Project Cadmus, the uh, cloning facility that produced Superboy as well. And uh, they produced, uh, a little uh, before they produced Superboy, they cloned themselves and uh, thereby... thereby uh, unleashed the uh, Golden Age Newsboy Legion back on the uh, 1990s DC Universe. Uh, so they're supporting characters in this story, and it's all about Superboy uh, venturing deep into the bowels of Project Cadmus to learn a few more details about his own origins and how he was created and, uh, and then subsequently escaped during the whole reign of the Superman thing after Superman died. Um, and uh, he finds, well, naturally he doesn't like very much what he finds. He finds a whole bunch of... Uh, uh, well, rejected uh, Superman-type clone beings in well, plasma-filled cylinders down there. And he even comes across, and this is the really the only reason why this made my list in the first place, a bizarro Superboy. Huh? A, a, biz- <laughs> a post-crisis bizarro Superboy, which I'm pretty sure is the only like incontinuity version of bizarro that didn't have kind of a tragic... No, Frankensteinian cast about itself. Um, this one spoke in you know, the zany, bizarro speak. But that am me. Me, I'm Superboy. <laughs> uh, 
And you remember the very first time you ever see this clone Superboy, you know, right after. I think it was one of the final pages of Adventures of Superman number 500. Uh, he's whirling around and yelling at the Newsboy Legion, hey, don't ever call me Superboy. Uh, well, there's kind of a callback to that in this annual as the Pizarro Superboy says, hey, no ever call me Superman. Because unlike clone Superboy, Bizarro clone Superboy is actually pretty happy and honored to be called Superboy. And, of course, there's a fight between Bizarro Superboy and normal Superboy. And, and I was just grooving on this so hard at that time because I was so dis- – I had just recently discovered, you know, within just the past couple of years, how neat those pre-crisis Bizarro world stories were. I had just fallen in love with the character, and I was desperate to see something more like that come into the present-day DC universe instead of you know, playing you know, Bizarro as this you know, tragic figure. Um, but this was a fairly funny Bizarro Superboy who still ended up dying a tragic death in the end. Um, and we also learned a couple, in addition to the whole Bizarro Superboy thing, uh, we also learned a couple of details which were later retconned out about, uh, well, Superboy's true genetic nature. Um, we find past director of Project Cadmus, Paul Westfield, who is dead at the time this story is published, uh, pops up on a vid screen and says, hey, Superboy, I am your father, basically. And, and uh, it informs him that he's, he's, he's a scuzzo and a slime bag, and Superboy is not at all happy to learn that he's cloned from this guy. And, of course, later on we find out that that was uh, a lie fed to him by Westfield and that his uh, Superboy's actual gene donors are Superman and Lex Luthor. Still a scuzzball, not exactly a step up from uh, Westfield either. But So anyway, this is just an annual that uh, really gripped me at the time just because I was so elated to see a slightly happier version of a Bizarro character show up in post-crisis continuity. And I was hoping that, you know, since when the first Bizarro appeared in the Silver Age, he, was, he appeared in Superboy form first and was followed by a Bizarro Superman who then went off to found the Bizarro world. I was hoping at that time that history would repeat itself. My hopes were high in the sky, and I just kind of adored this annual because of that. So, and plus, it, it's a part of the Superboy series by uh, Kiesel and usually Tom Grummet on art, which was, you know, I, I never really cared that much for the clone Superboy character, but I enjoyed the kind of adventures he had under Kiesel's pen and, uh, well, and Grummet's pencils. So, yeah, this, and just throwing Bizarro in there, Carl Kiesel is an avowed Bizarro fan. I do have a sketch of Bizarro by him, so anytime <laughs> he told nice. any kind of Bizarro story, I was going to lap it right up, and this was the first such story that I that I discovered and bought. So, yeah, that's, it's got a special place in my heart, and it's also got a spot on my top five list. Now, now that, that run of Superboy, is that the, the eventual run where Hypertime was in? Yes. Which I loved myself, um, and I loved that story arc as well, just, just as a story arc, let alone that Hypertime mm-hmm. was all in it. But, right, um, it was called Hypertension. Okay. Yes, and it had it did as I'm sure you remember had Superboy visiting a bunch of different alternate realities yeah. in the hypertime stream, and he was chased by an evil alternate reality adult version of himself called Black Zero. Yep, yep. Okay. Yep, just fun series all the way around. Yeah, and I sure do recommend was. This annual as a part of that. Absolutely. Chris, all right. My number four is from 1984. Tales of the Teen Titans. Annual number three. Oh, nice. Which oh, really uh, is a continuation of New Teen Titans. They simply changed the title of the book. Yeah. Uh, by the, I think, one of the all-time great creative teams 
in comics, I'm sure Murd would agree, which is mm -hmm. Marv Wolfman scripting and George Perez. Pence, of course, our fabled co-founder Peter would no doubt agree with that as well. Yeah. And inks by the legendary and late much lamented Dick Giordano. Um, now, I should mention to our listeners, we have mentioned this past, we are going to be doing a book of the month on the Judas contract, yep. which this annual is the final installment of. So expect that in the not-too-distant future. Um, I just read this recently because we're going to be discussing the Judas yeah. contract in the near future. Sure. I've read it a couple times before in my life. Um, wow, this is, to me, this is like what an annual should really be in some cases. This is a huge story that has just a, a seismic impact on the characters, in this case, uh, the Teen Titans. Um, I don't want to say too much because maybe some people haven't read this story yet. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to spoil. We're gonna, when we talk know, about it a little bit later. Yeah. We do the book of the month. But suffice it to say, first of all, the artwork is so breathtakingly beautiful. I mean, yeah, I mean it is. Perez, Mer, this is right before Christ on Infinite Earths, isn't it? Uh, it's uh, one year before okay. Crisis on so Infinite He's really reaching, I think, the peak of his powers at this point. And it's a story that just, I mean, this is the final chapter in the Judas Contract, but it just explores in a very tragic way the team dynamic of the Teen Titans and what happens when, shall we say, one of those members goes awry. Yeah. Um, and it's, 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 it's a great action story, but more than that, it's about a family really being torn asunder, this, this team, and the consequences of that. And it's tragic and sad oh yeah um well and, and and knowing what happens to the characters in the yeah. book especially the one character yeah. in particular um knowing how that character's interpretation translates into other mediums i'll leave it at that yes i did not realize that this story ended the way it did oh yeah and when i got to them like whoa that mm. totally took well, me for a loop Okay. We'll I think I know what other medium you yeah, mean. We'll, yeah, yeah. We'll discuss when we, when we do the book of the month on this. Um, I know exactly what you're referring to. Yeah. Uh, this is a very adult story. Yeah, it sure was. And it's not unlike – I can see why the, new, the Teen Titans were so huge in the early 80s, and mm -hmm. no one can speak better of this than Peter. Yeah. Um, because to me, this – this Wolfman and Perez were taking the superhero comic concept and they were taking it to a much more sophisticated level um, that I think a lot of people might have been accustomed to, especially a book about very young characters. Yeah. Um, and you – I mean – and the Teen Titans – the new Teen Titans were compared a lot to the X-Men because they're both really becoming huge at the same time. Yeah. Um, but when you look at the team dynamic in the Teen Titans – there's, that's very strong. There's the, the history because there, a lot of them are, were former sidekicks um, or, or you know, sort of treading in the shadow of another hero. Mm -hmm. But then there's also they, they form their own team dynamic, their own family. And as you read these stories – and I haven't read that whole run, but I've read parts of it. And I certainly read The Judas Contract more than once. Um, you really – and again, this is the mark of what a great writer Marv Wolfman is. You really feel the bonds between them. And that's what makes this finale so devastating yeah. um, when it occurs. And what I also like about it is that, again, without giving away too much, you know, we're talking about the character who went awry, so to speak. There's not a lot that's redeemable there. No. And it's dark. Yeah. Like, it's not like, okay, no, no, this, this is, this is twisted. And, uh, 
The only other thing I, I'll say is this story reconfirms for me that I think Deathstroke is one of the greatest villains in the DC universe. Yeah, that was um, an interesting. Uh... He, I, I just, he's such a riveting, and in, and also in many ways, such a twisted and tragic character himself. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, very much looking forward to discussing this full story and in the, the not too distant future. But that's. To me, when, you, when I think about what, what an annual should really mean something, I always think of this annual. And I think if I remember when I when I finished that that issue in, in the trade, uh, that's a 40-page annual too. That was a yeah. lot of good story in that yeah. and beautiful annual. beautiful Parazar. Oh, oh yeah. Man. Yeah. You, you almost uh, – yeah. it's hard to compare that. Yeah. Um, all right. Co- coincidentally, my f- number four annual comes from 1984 as well. Huh. Uh, mine is the Justice League of America the end of the Justice League annual. Now, this, um, I didn't buy this off the rack. I bought this well after I had started reading the Giffen de Mateus McGuire run of Justice League and was which starting... Which you cherish. Which I do. And is a legendary run. Um, then I started going back. I think my aunt had gotten me, oh gosh, I want to say a $25 gift certificate to the comic book store that I went to at the time in Pottstown. And... During Christmas, he had a sale. Everything half off. What was the name of that store? Turks. T U R K apostrophe S. Just Turks. Just Turks. Okay. It wasn't as far as I know. It wasn't Turks Comics. Okay. It wasn't anything. The only way I discovered it, and I think I said this way back in the beginning of Comic Geek Speak when we talk about things, um, there was a hoagie shop across the street from it, and no, a side of it. And my mom and dad would go to that hoagie. No, across the street. Then he moved. That's right. Oh my God. Um, we would go to that hoagie shop all the time, and just once I noticed a G.I. Joe Marvel Comics poster in the window, the and Gateway Batman, comic, the Gateway comic. and Spider-Man, and uh, one time when Dad was picking up hoagies and I was along, I said, can I go over there and take a look? And I did, and that's where I discovered a comic book store. I had never been in one before, never saw one before, so then he moved into the store aside of the hoagie shop, a much smaller store, and he had a sale. So his back issues much like what yours are at Wild Pig, mm-hmm. were half off at $0.25 cents a pop. So I spent my entire $25 gift certificate on quarter <laughs> issues, and I got a slew of old Justice League stuff. And That's by old, started. I mean like it was from like number 261 back to 200 plus yeah. annuals and some other stuff I was looking for, uh, what little bit I knew to look for. So that's where I got this issue from. And I picked it out probably early in my selecting because of the cover you have the what would become the detroit league on the bottom pointing out as like pointing to the future or what you know going out to do heroics thing you have vibe steel martian manhunter elongated man vixen aquaman and zatanna and then in the background in the clouds you have green lantern superman wonder woman batman and flash and I love the cover, thinking I know that, that I know that cover. Yeah, I remember that, that all of them were going to be in it. Of course, they're not. But, <laughs> but still, it was a cool cover, and it was a great issue. I at this point don't remember the story in the issue. Um, it was written by Jerry Conway, oh. penciled by Chuck Patton, inked by Dave Hunt, colored by Carl Gafford. Was this the Detroit JLA? I think this is where it started. This was Conway their... is known for the Detroit. Yeah, show, and Peter could speak better to that than this I. This is heard. the second annual. There was a third one to come towards the end of the run, and then, um, gosh, I don't remember what issue this would have been surrounding uh, in their normal run. But I just love that cover, and I remember that being one of the earlier annuals that I bought, mm. and the fact that it was Justice League, and I was trying to amass what I could of Justice League, having just gotten immersed in it with the 
87, uh, 86, given to McGuire, given Demetrius McGuire Justice League. So that that one, I remember my first copy of this. I don't think I have my original copy of this. I destroyed it reading it. The cover fell off and all that. So I, I ended up getting another mind. one at some point. But yeah, that was that was a, a great little story. Now I assume Turks is long gone. Oh my gosh, yes. Turks <laughs> turned into another comic book store, which I became friendly with and hung out a lot. I helped them at some of their hotel shows they had, mm-hmm. which is where I met. Um, um, a Steranko the first time, uh, and I had was he a jerk to you too? No, no, okay. he wasn't. <laughs> I had no idea who he even was, and the yeah. owner of the shop because again, this was in my infancy of comic right. book collecting and reading, and I was a DC guy back then, um, even heavier than what I was through the the rest of the eighties and nineties. But the the owner of the shop came up to me and handed me the Shield Annual that I guess had reprints in it. I, I don't know that I've actually ever read the annual itself, but it was a great cover of, of Nick Fury on it. And he said, I want you to take this and I want you to go over there and introduce yourself and meet him and ask him if he would please sign this for you. And I said, okay. And I really didn't know the, the weight or oh, yeah. importance of that because I mean, this was in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, a little holiday Inn hotel show. Right. And here's Taranko <laughs> doing it. Now, I mean, I see him everywhere at every show, but that was a lot of fun once I learned who he was yeah. um, and what he did for Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. and all that. Um, and I still have that copy. It's, it's in my collection. Every now and then I'll get it out. And I should explain my comment because I revere Steranko's work. Mm-hmm. But a couple of years ago he was extremely rude to our fabled co-founder Brian Deemer yeah. at a show. For, and with no cause whatsoever. So yeah, you know, I always think about that. But I separate that from how important the man is. Oh, my artist. gosh, yeah. So. yeah. But, yeah, the JLA number 2, 1984. All right. That's my number four. Excellent. Number All right. Threes. Number three. So, Chris, you're up. Okay. My number three, uh, Murd, also from the 1980s, Avengers Annual 10. You took my number one. Oh! oh, oh. oh. Wow. Right. Here's what we're going to do then. I won't say that much about it. I wasn't uh, sure there was going to be any overlap here, honestly. Uh, <laughs> How about that? All right. Yeah. All I'll say is... And Murd, I think this further supports your your statement that the '80s were a golden age for annuals. And this is a first of all, it's Michael Golden artwork. It is just beyond gorgeous. And and this is one of the first times, besides Micronauts, I saw Michael Golden artwork, um, and it just completely floored me. Um, in fact, I'm, they have, I'm looking at a whole uh, a whole spread of the, the the annual here. I'm looking at it on the computer, but this is all I'll say here because I don't want to steal Murd's Thunder, especially because this is number one. But mm, well, you, number one just means it's the earliest. I know, Murd, but but you're the master, and I want to I want to pay homage. Um, all I will say is Chris Claremont writing, Michael Golden penciling. You've got the Avengers. You've got Mystique, the Brother of Evil Mutants, the first appearance of Rogue, uh, a Spider Woman appearance, an X Men appearance. Wow, and. They and if you recall from two years ago, our Avengers spotlights, mm-hmm. Claremont, and I think he does a wonderful job here. Finally, returns to what the hell happened to Carol Danvers when she ran off in Avengers 200 with Immortus's son? Um, that whole bizarre, you know, yes, please rate me uh, storyline. <laughs> um, and he, he he approaches it in a very intelligent way that explores the real consequences of what happened to Carol Danvers. Um, it's an annual that mesmerized me as a kid. I see it came out in 1981. Um, so I was eight. And then reading it again as an adult, 
it's, it's, I think it's one of, the fine, one of the finest Marvel annuals of all time. Nice. So, and I'll leave the rest for Mert. All right. <clears throat> all right. Um, my number three is probably my first Marvel annual I ever got. Um, and I was very much into this book at this time, and I loved this particular issue. I didn't realize all the things that Marvel did surrounding this issue in New York City when this issue was coming out, if, if I'm right in what I saw recently on a, one of, those, one of the, the, the PBS documentary that aired mm-hmm. a while ago. I was rewatching that and forgot this part. It's um, The Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 21, The Wedding. Ah. Um, written by David Michelin and Jim Shooter. Michelini. Michelini, thank yeah. you. And Jim Shooter, penciled by Paul Ryan, inked by Vincent Joseph Coletta, and uh, colored by Bob Sharon. Um, I just remember that for oh, for an yeah. annual being an event, deal. that was a huge that was a deal. deal. Um, and that that That's began one of my alternates, by the way. Oh, nice. Yeah. That began a gateway for me with any superhero wedding that I wish they would allow them to survive, have kids. I mean, we've seen others be married and yeah. some have had kids, but there's always a reboot or a reset to that at some yeah, point. Most of them don't make it eventually. Yeah. Um, but this was a lot of fun to read. And, and at this time I was really getting into Spider-Man. Spider-Man was other than GI Joe, Spider-Man was my gateway into Marvel. And, um, a lot of same, things, same for me. a lot of things came from me reading Spider-Man from, I think it was two eighty nine. Was that the Hobgoblin storyline around that time that was the unsatisfying conclusion to the hobgoblin storyline okay so that was probably my first spider-man issue and then beyond that i was i was getting spider-man then on for years um but when it came to the to the wedding time which is 1987 i've been trying to write down my years um because mine really had a married and met at shea stadium yes and then they had a live (laughs) thing yeah with stan Stan lee Lee officiated officiated um but it was a lot of fun i mean this this was a great issue well what I, and what I love about that annual is it really explored because it's coming off of like the whole Hobgoblin story. A lot of major events that just happened in Spider-Man's yeah. life, um, and it really explored sort of his not his mixed feelings. He was deeply in love with Mary Jane, but just his his baggage. I mean, they really explore how he feels about Gwen still in that story, and his sort of his inner turmoil about the loss of Gwen and what she meant and so forth. Um, I mean, there's a great sort of dream sequence where all his villains are lined up in the pews and, and while he's getting married. And, oh, yeah. Um, and then they have the Hobgoblin just saying, die. Yeah. Um, and we have to remember the Hobgoblin was the Spider-Man villain of the 1980s. He yes, he was. was. huge. Um, and uh, it's... I have to be honest. I, I've always, I've never been a huge fan of a lot of the things Jim Shooter has done as a creator. I always, I, I could be totally wrong here. I always get the nagging feeling that, because I experienced this in my job as a teacher too, mm-hmm. that someone in a position of power kind of inserts themselves into the creative process, or maybe somebody else should have been better suited to doing that, um, like Dan DiDio. Um, you know, again, where I'm not a big fan of a lot of the things he's written, but. You know, I, I still res- respect Shooter's place in the history of comics, and uh, I, I think this is a, a strong annual. Um, and David McLean is, is a very solid writer. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, it, it just—it's something you just don't really see anymore, right? It, it's just 
they're they're moving a character forward. They're they're mm-hmm. taking that character on a journey where he's going into a new phase of his life. Where you see him as an adult. He's still Spider-Man. He's still all the adventures, but yeah. his life is moving forward. And and this lasted much longer than I ever thought it would. I miss the marriage. But I do too. All the time. And and to have things like like the Flash get married and have kids and then whoop, that got reset pretty yeah. quick. And to have um, gosh, what's another character? Oh, uh, um, Jean and and Scott got married on the X-Men and well, then that became a huge train wreck. So. Oh yeah. I mean <laughs> and and in a lot shorter time. So yeah. so Peter and Mary Jane stayed together for quite a long while. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me, even with everything that was going on and, and I, happening. And I think Straczynski did a real, one of the strongest parts I think of Straczynski's run was the way he handled the Mary Jane Peter yeah. relationship. Yeah. Yeah, he had to tiptoe around some editorial mandates to avoid confusing crossover readers that they got from the spider the, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Like they, for a while there, I don't think Straczynski was even allowed to acknowledge directly that the two of them were married. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. That doesn't surprise me. No, it doesn't me me either. Um, but yeah, for 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 as much as I I don't like some of the events that have happened in annuals, this was a great example of a single story that set off a great event yeah. in Spider-Man's history and propelled the character forward all at the same time. And it brought in a lot, like, you know, they, they kind of caught up with all the supporting characters like mm-hmm. Harry and Flash and, yeah. you know. Uh, it, again, something an annual did well. Yes. And uh, and it, that, again, when you think of what makes a great annual, that like that, or like with New Teen Titans, like that kind of yeah. event that deserves that extra attention, the extra pages, you know, and good choice, Shane. Yeah. Murd, you're number three. Okay. Well, my number three actually comes to us from the same year as uh, both of your number fours. Nice. Going back to 1984 again. That's a good year. <laughs> Unless yeah, you're I was Orwell. five and I, I, I had a good time. I was 12. I was 11. <laughs> uh, let's see. All right. We're going to one of my favorite series of all time. Um, and that is Roy Thomas's All-Star Squadron. Nice. Uh, nice. Yes. The third of three All-Star Squadron annuals, and the best of those three, was uh, released in 1984. And uh, it was a story that, well, like a lot of the stuff that Roy Thomas did with uh, the All-Star Squadron, uh, bridged gaps in Golden Age continuity, or just basically built Golden Age continuity where none was uh, from scratch. No one does it better than Um, Roy Thomas. It is, yeah, it was, this has always been his specialty. And uh, he um, he uh, collaborated with his wife, Danette, uh, on this story, and a whole raft of quality artists as well. Uh, for pencilers, this was a jam session between people like, uh, well, Rich, Bu- Rich Buckler, who is uh, kind of known for his uh, pencils on Golden Age characters, uh, Keith Giffen, uh, the main artist was Rick Hoberg, Richard Howell, Carmen Infantino, wow. Don Newton, George Perez, oh. and the great Wayne Boring. Oh, yes. And then inks, um, some of those gentlemen that I just mentioned inked themselves. Um, the, but Jerry Ordway is uh, also uh, lent his inks to this issue, and uh, that, uh, that, that's always a good thing whenever it happens. And the story takes place, of course, back in the 1940s. It's uh, set in the gap, apparently, between a couple of issues of All-Star Comics. And uh, it, it tells a tale of a sh- shadowy figure, literally shadowy. He's like a... He's sort of like a shadow demon, Crisis on Infinite Earth style. Uh, he's a sorcerer named Ian Karkel, uh, who reduced himself to a shadowy state. Um, a sorcerer who decided to muddle with time. So, 
Your ears pricking up there, Shane. It's a timey wimey thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> so he uh, he recruits a, a squad of uh, major and minor Golden Age villains, and I'm sure Roy Thomas had uh, great fun picking which characters are going to be a part of this team. Um, on the on the better known side, the Earth Two Catwoman was there um, d- during the period when she wore just like an orange dress and a big head mask shaped like a, a cat's head. It's kind of a bizarre look for her. Um, but she was there. A lesser-known Superman villain called the Lightning Master was there. There was a Spectre villain called Zor, the Terrible Time Tailor. He was <laughs> one of that squad. Shur Satan from the Faultless Four, one of the first villains the Flash, uh, well, the Jay Garrick Flash ever fought. Uh, Dr. Doog, the first ever Ted Knight Starman villain. Wow. Nice. Uh, so uh, he recruited all these guys to run interference for him and uh, distract members of the JSA while Karkle set about his dread errand to try and assassinate. Uh, he had a mysterious hit list that he had assembled somehow, and uh, you don't understand what these uh, people he's trying to assassinate have in common until the very end. Um, but uh, the various JSAers uh, mobilize, and in classic all-star comics fashion, they, they form little teams and go up against all these different villains and so there's like little different sub-chapters of these heroes uh, acting in ones and twos to defeat these villains. And eventually they all come together and uh, somehow uh, Roy and Dan Thomas work it out so that uh, Lois Lane and the Flash's wife, Joan Williams, are with them. There's a final confrontation with Karkle in which they're all irradiated with some kind of time radiation. <laughs> And the upshot of all of this is that this is how Roy Thomas explains how all these Earth 2 characters in the 40s could have remained relatively young and vital all the way up to the 1980s, uh, when uh, these, which is the present day as of when this, this comic was actually published. So uh, when, J- when the JSA gets together in the present day in the 1980s, as seen in the pages of, say, Infinity Inc., they're all looking fairly young and healthy for people who were active as superheroes in the 40s, this is Thomas's little incontinuity way of explaining how that came about. And uh, there's also the, the reveal of uh, the significance of uh, Karkle's hit list is really pretty chilling, too. At the very end, we, the reader, sees, although I don't think any characters in the story see, um, this dossier that Karkle had that spills open on a table someplace, and um, the people he was researching in the 40s to assassinate are all future presidents of the United States. And uh, the JSA, Alan Scott specifically, fails to save one of the people on that hit list. So (laughs) Earth 2 history, uh, what we're told in this annual, is in some way divergent from real-world history in that one person who was supposed to be a president of the United States ended up dying in that story. So there's just a ton of cool Golden Age characters running around in this story, hero and villain both, a neat plot, and it's it's a great little ingenious continuity fix or prop uh, that uh, that Thomas has devised. And it's it's the stuff that I, as a a nerdy little continuity wonk fan, uh, just thrive on. So this is it, it's probably it's it's the best annual of one of the best series ever produced in comics, as far as I'm concerned. So plopped it right down in the middle of my top five list. All right. All right. Uh, before we go on, we're going to take a short pause and hear again from our sponsor, Geek Fuel. That's geekfuel.com. We had another package shipped to us that arrived this week, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Chris is going to open this one up. All right. Do you want to remind people of what the basic yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, parameters of it are? You can sign up for a monthly, three months, six months, or a year. Um, you go online, register, 
pay the fee and you get every month a box filled of geek goodness. It can be comic book related, can be sci-fi related, anything in the pop culture geeky genre. And it's got a value of $50 plus guaranteed inside that box. And it, it's a fun mystery box. And uh, you get some really cool stuff. I think it's a great concept. Yeah. All right. Drum roll. We're going to open this box. Let's see what we got here. All right. First of all, this is exciting. Yeah. A pop figure, Guardians of the Galaxy Yondu. Vinyl bobblehead. <laughs> That's and awesome. He's, and they, they, he even has in the sheaf that little cosmic arrow he uses yeah, yeah. to that he whistles slay around. multiple enemies. We have a... Yeah. Definitely the uh, movie version of Yondu as oh, opposed yeah. to right, This yeah. is funny. I, you I, know I, what that I, is? Is this a, like a little blanket? Pillowcase. It's a pillowcase. Okay. It's got a image of Admiral Akbar's head proclaiming, It's a nap! <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> That's fantastic. Kudos to Geek Fuel. That's an outstanding choice. We've got a Gatorade Energy Drink, Energy Swords Citrus, premium gaming stamina. That 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 surprised me when I saw that was in there. But I mean, it makes sense with the gaming stamina yep. stuff. We have a T-shirt. A let's see, a size small. Uh, looks like it's it's a history of gaming remote controls. Yep, that's a great game controller T-shirt. You're a video game geek. It has uh, Game Boys, DSs, maybe even Segas, um, Wii's. The only thing, you know, if I had to say something was missing, an Atari controller <laughs> for the nostalgia. How many of them of have you broken, Shane? Um, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Probably about half a dozen. All right, this is a great button. Save the clock tower! <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I need to say, everybody should know what I'm referring to Oh there. my gosh, yeah. This is a Back to the Future thing? Yeah, it sure is. And then they have uh, a, st- a big sticker where they have the the time, time clock from the, from the DeLorean, which is great. Mm. And it has on it, I mean, we're doing this on the 23rd of October, recording this, you know, a little behind the curtain. And, of course, uh, Back to the Future Day was just two days ago, which I loved, by the way. I watched uh, I watched enough of it to be satisfied for my October twenty first two thousand fifteen. So <laughs> this sticker coming in this box is fabulous. And also included is a they have a, a magazine a Geek Fuel magazine. Take a look at and then um, a ten dollar value. Over nine thousand zombies downloading game code and strategy guide. Nice. Over 9,000 zombies is top-down arcade action blown out of all reasonable proportions. An endless horde of zombies is coming your way. How long can you survive? Uh, inside uh, this Geek Fuel magazine, it's issue 9, October 2015, has an article about Now is the Future. When Back to the Future originally came to the big screen, the writers had high hopes for what things in the, this crazy world of ours would look like once Marty landed in 2015. And it lists the Pepsi Perfect, a wireless video games, which the kids um, talk about when they're in the cafe 80s, handheld tablets, which the one guy does when he asks Marty to thumb a thumb some money uh, for the clock tower for them. Florida's baseball team, which is Miami Marlins. Uh, Miami looks like Gators in the movie, but it's the Miami Marlins, of course, now. The auto lace and sneakers by Nike. All-consuming electronics, which Marty Jr. has in the VR visor he has on. And the hoverboard. 
they have a, a little blurb about each of those and, and what has come true and what hasn't. So that's cool. All right, so God, that smells good too. What's their website? Is it geekfuel.com? Geekfuel.com. All right. So check them out. Set up, uh, set yourself up, or set somebody uh, that you know likes geek goodiness with a like nice surprise mystery box. Yeah. Get some cool stuff. That's geekfuel.com. All right. Number two. Number Shane, why don't you start us off? Number two. So this, I believe, is my very first annual ever purchased. I was at the beach. It very well may have been at Stone Harbor Murd. At the drugstore, or if there was a comic store back then, but I don't think there was. I think it was a drugstore. I don't think there was either, but Ronco's probably would have been. So wait a minute, wait a minute. When there was darkness in your life, pre-Murd, before you knew who Murd was, you were at Stone Harbor. Oh, yeah. I just got to chill out. We used to go down. My family used to vacation in Ocean City, New Jersey, and then we would take one day, because we were there for a week. Yeah. We would take one day and go over to Stone Harbor. Mm Mm-hmm. And walk around. And I know, and I talked to my mom about this after being down at your place over the summer, Murd. I talked to my mom about this, and she's like, oh, yeah, I remember going down to the Christmas shop down there. And that was the only one there, you know, down the main drag of Stone Harbor. So I had been in that store well before I ever knew Murd. Magnificent. Um, And (laughs) when one of the vacations, I know I bought comics. I swear it was at Stone Harbor. And, And maybe that's just me hopeful that it was. But it was a couple issues of the early Justice League from 1987, mm-hmm. 86, from Giffen Dimitteis's run. And annual number one, with which featured um, the Grey Warfare, the Grey Man story, the finish of the Grey Man story. Um, for my love of that book, to know that I got that annual, because I couldn't find it anywhere at my normal shop mm-hmm. up here at Turks, because... I was behind the eight ball, right. so to speak. And um, to find it down there on a spinner rack or on a shelf, you know, whatever magazine rack it was, um, was a lot of fun. Because every year we'd get, we'd get to buy little things. I remember one year, that's where I got my land speeder from Star Wars, was on the boardwalk at a mm-hmm. toy shop. Um, this annual's written by J.M. DeMatteis, Keith Giffen, penciled by Giffen and Bill Wellingham. Oh, wow. Which was a lot of fun. And I remember when we talked about that. Uh, on the show at one point. I can't remember if it was during the footnote type era we were doing with Justice League or if it was just in a in a regular episode. But um, that was a lot of fun to see that this team progress. Battle the Grey Man storyline was fantastic. A lot of fun. Um, with a little feature for, for Dr. Fate in the storyline. Um, the Grey Man was beating everybody left and right like crazy. Um, I want to say that this issue, this annual, had the one-page... I almost got to buy, but I got outbid, uh, which featured Ugh. the gray man coming at everybody um, with all the legion of people that he had controlled or all the gray men manifestations. And the whole Justice League backed in a corner where you had all of them featured oh, on the lower page. panel. And uh, I, Sorry I didn't get it. Oh, well, you know, it is what it is. I mean, yeah. that's when eBay was in its infancy. So whoever got it still got it for a song right? Um, compared to what artwork goes for these days. But just what a what a fun issue for me, not only because of my love of the book, the characters, and that whole era of Justice League, but to know that I got it on vacation with the family off a spinner rack or a magazine rack at a drugstore, whether it was Stone Harbor or Ocean City, wherever it was, I was on vacation at the beach at something I will never forget getting it. Reading it in the car on the way home, I, I read through that thing a thousand times, it seemed, during that and week. And that's the wonderful thing. We all have these memories of certain comics – some hold up on your adults, some don't. But 
you cherish them because they may remind you of where you were at that moment yeah. in your childhood, you know, your coming of age and so forth. Oh, Great yes. story. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Murray, what's your number two? All right. My number two... I'm not going to go on at too great length about this one because um, both uh, Pants and I have talked this comic up at different times before. I, I know that this is a favorite of his. If you were able to join us tonight, I know it would be on his top five list as well. And I've talked about it uh, with Peter Rios on um, one of our Crisis Tapes episodes when we talked about our own top five favorite parallel Earth stories in the DC multiverse. Um, it's DC Comics Presents Annual oh, Number yes. One. Nice. Yeah, I've heard this you is from on this many times. Yeah. Written by uh, Marv Crisis on Infinite Earths Wolfman. Pencils are by uh, Rich Buckler, mentioned a few minutes ago as uh, one of the artists on All-Star Squadron Annual Number 3. He's one of the greatest latter-day Earth 2 artists ever. Um, And it's a parallel Earth story, a team-up. Since DC Comics Presents was all about Superman team-ups, this was a Superman and Superman team-up. So it was the Supermen of Earth 1 and Earth 2 going up against the Luthors of Earth 1 and Earth 2, and as if that weren't enough, you see, the story is entitled Crisis on Three Earths. The two Luthors try switching Earths and going up against each other's respective Superman. Okay, so uh, we had Alexei Luthor of Earth 2 trying to take on the Earth 1 Superman and vice versa. Neither one of them had any success. Um, so they had to recruit a third party, and they went to Earth 3 and got the evil Superman of that world, Ultraman, of the crime syndicate, to join them. Uh, but the Supermen then followed suit, and uh, they found an ally on Earth-3 in the person of Alex Luthor, the Lex Luthor of Earth-3, who was actually a good, benevolent person, uh, a scientist, uh, who had long been uh, working to use his science to find a way to free his uh, Earth from the tyranny of the crime syndicate. And uh, so this is the first appearance of the Lex Luthor of Earth-3, who died a heroic death in Crisis on Infinite Earths number 1. And it's also here that we first see the, the the first hint of a romance between him and the Lois Lane of Earth Three, and the two of them would, of course, had to have a child, Alex, little Alex Luthor, who uh, was a very important figure in the Crisis on Infinite Earths maxi series. Um, but uh, at base, though, this it's just uh, two Supermen and one good Luthor versus two Luthors and one evil Superman. But what more do you really need to know? Good fun <laughs> story, and the artwork by Rich Buckler, nice and. Nice and clean, and uh, he, he suits uh, Earth 2 and or Golden Age characters well, and there are a couple of those in here. So, yep, it's one of my favorite stories, one of Pants' favorite stories. Recommended. All right. Nice. I've, I've heard you wax rhapsodic about that many times, both in person and on the air. And that whole DC Comics Presents is such a great series in general. Um, and I, whenever I'm securing back issues for the shop, that's always a title I always look for because I think there's just a lot of fondness for that t- that title because it's that wonderful team-up concept, a lot of standalone stories. Mm-hmm. You can pick up any book and just have a fun story to read. Uh, you, you don't see much of that anymore, so it's yeah. it, it's great. Um, my number two, and Murdy mentioned this before, it's a bit of a cheat. This is an annual, but it has a reprint in it. But I think it's one of the all-time great reprints. It's Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 9 which was published in 1973, and it's a reprint of the classic 1968 Color Spider-Man magazine, Spectacular Spider-Man number two. This is Spectacular Spider-Man volume one, which was a two-issue magazine. Marvel in the late 60s tried to get into the magazine market. It was an, an, an abortive effort. They only did two, two issues. The first Spider-Man magazine was black and white, um, and the second one was color, 
but they re but that magazine is very expensive to find now I I as a back issue. I've owned it a couple times in the shop in my inventory, but it's not cheap. Um, but they did a reprint of it in this annual uh, in the 70s. It is a classic Green Goblin story, absolute classic. Uh, beautiful John Romita Sr. artwork, Stanley scripting, and it's just it's a great Silver Age Spider-Man Goblin confrontation. They explore you know the, the madness of Norman Osborn and the anxiety that causes Harry, and you know, and May is imperiled, and uh, there's a great where Norman Osborn, remembering he's the Goblin, invites Peter, Harry. Mary Jane and Gwen to a dinner party, which has sinister undertones because Peter knows that Norman realizes that he's Spider-Man. Um, to me, it's one of the great 1960s sort of Silver Age Spider-Man stories, featuring his greatest villain. Um, and uh, I'm sure the annual goes for a few dollars now as well, but if you find that it's probably cheaper than the original magazine, mm -hmm. um, it's a classic. So that's... That's my number two. I mean, when I think about great Spider-Man stories and the essence of Spider-Man's Silver Age, this is a story I always think of. Nice. So that's my number two. Very cool. All right, number ones. I think we're up to Murd going first. Murd, fire away. All right. I'll uh, try to pick up where Chris left off because, as <laughs> everybody knows, Avengers Annual Number 10 from 1981 uh, was, was the number one on, on my list. But as, as I said, mainly just because it's the earliest on my top five list. This is a comic that I had wanted to own for years because for the first couple of years when I started collecting comics uh, in the early 90s, uh, Rogue was actually my favorite female comics character. And my beloved Kitty Pride was actually dwelling in the number two spot for a while <laughs> until she moved up and overtook Rogue. Um, so I had I'd had that on my want list for a good long time. And then I finally came across it just relatively recently, actually, within the last 10 years, um, at a uh, flea market. Uh, it's a local uh, well, Reading area, Berks County flea market, called Renninger's, out in Adamstown, um, in, in uh, what, what's known as the antiques market capital of the world. Found it uh, in an, like an outdoor portion of the market, underneath a uh, sort of a canopy, uh, in a stand that was only a couple of booths down from one that was owned and operated by the mother of my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> so that was an odd afternoon. I had a really a sort of a surreal conversation with my ex's mom, and then I found Avengers Annual Number Ten for like ten bucks, and I was I was happy to pay that actually, because uh, the story itself, in addition to being Rogue's first appearance, Rogue is she, she's sort of key to the plot in the, in that story because sure. now this is you know as, as Chris said earlier this. Uh, this story revisits uh, the, play, the the status quo of Carol Danvers, you know, the erstwhile Ms. Marvel in the Marvel Universe, after she disappeared in Avengers number 200. Um, so this uh, issue brings us back up to date with her, and right away we find that Rogue, this new character, this new sort of ace in the hole that uh, Mystique has acquired or recruited for her Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, has captured her powers permanently. This is the issue where that happens. And, and then sets about temporarily stealing the powers of a couple of Avengers. See, the, 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 she and Mystique have this plot worked out to neutralize certain members of the Avengers uh, while they then proceed with their main objective, which is to free their teammates of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants from prison. 
And so that's that's how Rogue is introduced as this um, as Mystique's secret weapon in this plot she has to uh, release her soldiers in the army for uh, for mutant rights, uh, if if not mutant domination. Um, and the event it, it's mainly the Avengers going up against uh, the, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So there, there's lots of good action happening in this story. Um, there's also a um, guest appearance by uh, Jessica Drew as Spider Woman, uh, you know, doing her uh, detective thing and uh, trying to figure out what had happened to Carol Danvers when uh, she comes across an amnesiac Carol Danvers throwing herself off a bridge near the beginning of the story, and it kind of unfolds from there. Um, and eventually, uh, the, the X-Men do make an appearance as well. This is all written by Chris Claremont, of course, who's you know, best known for his X-Men work. And uh, they're the ones who end up uh, granting sanctuary to Carol Danvers at the end of the story. And as Chris also hinted at earlier, or alluded to, uh, the, there is a very taut confrontation scene at the end of the story in which Carol Danvers has it out with the Avengers for the decision that they made in uh, in Avengers number 200 to just uh, let Marcus, the spawn of Kang, uh, tootle off into the time stream, taking Ms. Marvel, Carol Danvers, along with him. Um, and she just reams them out for, a, for, for not questioning her judgment more, for not realizing that uh, she, her will was not her own, that Marcus had been hypnotizing her. And so, as, as Chris said, it is a mature treatment of and sensitive treatment of, of the matter because it's basically treating the, the idea of relationship rape uh, in comics yes which certainly was not very often done in comics in 1981 it's barely touched these days even um of course on the other side of it uh it, it could be construed as carol danvers saying to the avengers you know how if you really loved me if you were really my friends how dare you allow me to make my own decisions um, but, you know, but since this is a superhero universe where such things as mind control do exist, and the situation was certainly very suspect, uh, she certainly had a point that the Avengers should not have left things where they did in Avengers 200, when and we Bert, did our Avengers spotlight. May I interject Remember for a moment? The time. May, was that Chris? may I interject for a moment? Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to add to that, that if you go back and listen to that spotlight, that was, uh, uh, I think it was Avengers in the Bronze Age, I believe. Um... It was clear when that book was written, there was a lot of hands involved in that story. And we commented on that episode, the way the Avengers acted did not ring true in the story at all. Um, and I think Claremont was trying, in a sense, to correct that or try to apply something plausible to what happened. Um, mm-hmm. and, and as you mentioned, that, that final discussion between Carol and the Avengers when she's, she's seeking refuge with the X-Men after she's been essentially psychically raped by a rogue... Um, uh, it's a powerful discussion, especially between her and her old friend Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch. And uh, it, it's, I think it's some of Claremont's finest writing. It, it, it's outstanding. Hmm. So It's not a proud moment for the Avengers, no. but it's a moment that needed to happen. Yes, absolutely. So, thank you, Chris. And Chris, would you mind sounding off a little bit further on this issue as far as the artwork? Because I agree, it's Michael Golden, and I agree that it's beautiful, but I'm always a little bit ashamed of my ability to discuss the visual dimension of comics. My so friend, if you have anything more to say about Michael Golden? You should never be ashamed as you're a master communicator. But um, the artwork, see, I mean, I, I'm not a, an expert art analyst myself, but just Golden's style is so... How do I put it? Uh, it's just so striking and so visceral. And you, the way he, he renders these characters 
and it is the first appearance of Rogue, for example. There's such mm-hmm. dynamism. Like when when you see Rogue, um, when you, or when you see Spider Woman trying to saving Carol Danvers as she's been pushed off the bridge, and she swoops her up before she hits the water, and uh, you you see the power and the musculature, and but it, it kind of reminds me of John Buscema in that it, it's so real, um, but but not in a, in, a, in a boring like photo. Uh, like copying a photograph type of way. It's very stylized, but it, it's just—it's such a visceral, compelling style of artwork. And uh, the action scenes where Rogue fights the Avengers, it's so powerful and so exciting. Um, and, I mean, Golden, his body of work, I think of this, I think of Micronauts. Um, he did a G.I. Joe yearbook, Shane. Uh, I think it was two or three, I forgot which one to be specific. Uh, and that issue of Doctor Strange, number 55, which people were raving about on oh. the forums. <laughs> yeah, it's, and I, I appreciate people in the forums pointing out how artistically influential that issue of Doctor Strange is. Um, he's, he's one of my all-time favorite comic book artists. And, and, and that's another reason why this issue, besides being just a great story uh, in terms of Claremont scripting, this, is, this story is a, Avengers Annual 10 is a visual feast. And I highly recommend, if, if you're a student of comic book art, as well as the history and, and, and the scripting, definitely pick it up. Nice. So. All right. Num- uh, Yours. Mine? Okay. Uh, all right. I'm not going to talk too much about this because I've mentioned this book on more than one episode. It's Fantastic Four, Annual Number 2. Nice. 1964. Now, listen to this roll call of glory for the creative team. Stan Lee, writing. Jack Kirby, the king, penciling. Inker Chick Stone, Letters Sam Rosen, The Origin of Doctor Doom. <laughs> now, I've talked about this in the, our FF Silver Age spotlight yep. and our spotlight on Doctor Doom. Yep. So I'm not going to go into too much more detail because, it's all right. you know, I don't, I don't want to flee people away because they're just I'm going on ad nauseum about it. But for me, again, this is another example of, of when an annual does great big things. And... They're taking what is already, even then at that early stage, was the villain of the Marvel Universe, and they give him a compelling, sophisticated origin that really portrays Doom not just as the mustache-twirling carbon copy villain, but as a complicated person who has tragedy in his past and helps explain why he is who he is as the menacing monarch of Latveria. And uh, I mentioned how Ed Brubaker in the Masterful Books of Doom, which I had, I think your son read, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I lent that to you. He, that came out in the 2000s. It was a miniseries. Uh, it's not in print now as a trade, I don't believe. I hope it will come back in print. Um, but the, you can probably find the miniseries in a lot of bargain bins, certainly at Wild Pit Comics, 14 South Michigan <laughs> Avenue, Kenilworth, New Jersey. Um, he takes that origin, Brubaker, and he, again, because he's a great writer, doesn't he? he doesn't need to j- chuck it because only a weak writer will do that. He takes it, he accepts the challenge, and he expands it even further and sort of updates it for the modern era. I think it's one of the, one of the greatest origin stories in superhero comics because it takes what could easily be a, a carb, like a kind of a rote villain, and it makes him a villain who's multidimensional, who is tragic, There's, and you can even feel some empathy for Doom without forgetting how ruthless and, and, and malevolent he really is capable of being. Um, you know, his gypsy past, his bitter rivalry with Richards. <laughs> and, and, you know, 
it's it's an origin like some Silver Age stories. Like you can appreciate the history and the significance, but they don't necessarily hold up as a read. This really holds up, and I, I highly recommend fans of Doctor Doom, of Marvel history, or just of a great comic book story and of a great annual to seek it out. You can find it in Marvel Masterworks. It's been reprinted. Um, masterful. That's that's my number one. That's awesome. Um. My number one is is kind of a cheat, just like what you're talking about, because it contains, and the bulk of it is a reprint. Yeah. And I don't quite remember when I got it or where I got it, um, but it was the first thing that popped into my head for annuals. And, and part of that's because growing up, I didn't consider it an annual, especially in my infancy of collecting comics, because it wasn't called an annual. Um, it's G.I. Joe Yearbook Number 1. Oh, great. From 1985. I remember vividly. It has, uh, let's see, inside is a reprint of Issue 1, uh, yep. Operation Lady Doomsday. Oh, yeah. It has a synopsis of the saga continues, everything that's happened since the first adventure, yep. with eb- excerpts from Issues 8, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 22, which Great is stuff. Snake Eyes Origins, right? 21 yes, and 22? 21 is a, no, 21 is Silent Interlude. Oh, 21 Silent yeah. Right, right, okay. And 25. It has the map of the pit. Which I love, oh yeah, and would f- drool over that, thinking, <laughs> how could I do that in a toy form? Um, profiles of your favorite GI Joes in a yes. file card type yep. format, and then at the back, something kind of interesting, which I had some books that did this just as their normal comic book, mm-hmm. was GI Joe on television um, oh, showed right. little things that happened through the cartoon. Yes, that's that right. Had aired and they had, to date. And they had stills of the animated. Yeah, show in there. yeah, yeah. And I had a Star Blazers one that did yep. the same thing. Only the Star Blazers one was a complete story, but stills yep. of all the of the cartoons. This was just kind of uh, highlights of the different shows. So I, I know I destroyed that book also um, <laughs> because it, it was. I didn't want to read – I had number one of G.I. Joe, and I didn't want to read it or pull it out of the plastic, but I would read this, and I would look at the pit, and I would read the file cards, and I would look at the cartoon stuff because back then if it didn't air on TV, it wasn't like I had a VCR to record stuff. Yep. Um, I don't think we had one at that point. And they didn't rerun stuff like crazy, the, that first no, mini series or two. Um, only later did they, did they start to really rerun cartoons once well, the main series came I didn't have a re-ACR yet either. You had to watch them when they came You had on. to watch it. Yep. So to, to do something like that, the back was a full – the front was a full cover of G.I. Joe um, around a Sky Striker with the team kind of huddled together. The back was a cover of Cobra, a back cover of all Cobra guys. Um, so that that was neat unto itself. Um, just a lot of fun, and I read and reread that over and over because I love that first story. Um, and I love that whole series. G.I. Joe really did a great job of, of building characters um, and following storylines and arcs and different things mm. that happened in early issues came back to, to uh, full. We praised that series ad nauseum in our G.I. Joe spotlight a couple oh, of years ago. It, it was just fantastic. Mm. Um, and I guess I never realized when I was younger that it was an annual because it wasn't called the annual. yearbook, yep. And G.I. Joe, while published by Marvel, was really separate from the rest of the Marvel Universe. Yes. Um, but, you know, it was a lot of fun to, to have those yearbooks come out, the two or three, three or four of them that there were. I know there was three. I can't remember if there was I, four. I'd have to look that up, yeah. Um, I know there's a trade of them out now, too, because yes, I don't have all of the yeah. annual, so I did get the trade. That's uh, from IDW. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Um, really, the Justice League annual from 87, number one, probably should have or could have been 
my number one, but um, for when we started thinking about this list, that was the first thing that popped in my head. Oh, G.I. Joe. You made a good point about designations because we also remember that in the Silver Age, for example, or the Bronze Age, Sometimes they didn't call them annuals. They called them king-size specials, Okay, yeah, for example, yeah. which is just sometimes so people aren't confused. They're trying to collect annuals. Like some of the early Spider-Man annuals, I think, were called – might even be the one that they showed his parents were called specials. Okay. Um, it's just, just so people aren't confused by yeah, that. I don't know. That. I, didn't, yeah. I did not realize that with the king-size so. annual. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Excellent choice. So there you go. There's our, there's our top and five. And do you have any alternates they want to shout out? <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Um just quickly, just throw. Let's out see there. the alternates I have. Um, I almost put one of the Starman annuals on here because oh, they're so good. I um, got and and as much as I love that series and, and that as much as I love Justice League mm-hmm. because it's contained in six omnibuses, I could carry that around much easier. Um, if I had to go on a desert island, that's what I would take with me. The annual I bought, I bought strictly for the cover to make a Halloween costume. <laughs> I had not read Starman at first. I had no interest at that point to read Starman. I got it so I could make the back of the jacket. Um, and uh, one of the Young Justice annuals, um, gosh, I can't remember which one it was, just blew me away and bowled me over. As, and, and that's another series that I, I – that was a guilty pleasure for a lot of years because not many people that I knew read Young Justice. Mm, great series. Um, but that whole series was just phenomenal. Oh, so entertaining. Um, funny story about annuals. Well before there was a Comic Geek Speak, there was myself and Peter and our friends John and Alex and Mike. And uh, I think Scott and Jamie might have been in on this as well um, because uh, Scott Powers and Jamie, Mm -hmm. Jamie D, of course. um, We had a huge joke about how bad Jail Ape yearbook (laughs) annuals were. And saying something because Jamie D loved apes in any kind of Oh, I know. But that that annual was – that whole series was horrible. (laughs) But – because John and Alex and Jamie worked at Golden Eagle, they got a hold of one of the promo posters. And every time we would go hang out at somebody's house, because back then I, I think I think I was the only one married. We lived in a house, so people came to our house. But we would hang out at other houses yeah. as well. Whoever had the poster would hide it somewhere in the house <laughs> because that was so horrid. Yeah. And then we'd find it eventually and yeah. then – Next house we'd go to, we'd hide Great it. Great tradition. That was all just the JLA horrific. I can think of worse things to hide at someone's oh, house than Art right. Adam's artwork. Though. Right, right, right. Oh, the beautiful artwork. But, oh, God, the story was horrible. <laughs> Give you any other alternates you want to throw? No, that's it. I just have a couple. Uh, in fact, one of them is Starman Annual 2. Nice. From the pulp uh, theme they did. Pulp Heroes? Pulp, pulp? Heroes. Oh, yeah. Um, they explore his relationship. I forgot the name of the, the, the woman. Who, Sadie Falk. She's the reason. Yeah. He, she's the reason he goes off on his journey. I just remember because I, I like you. I revere that entire. I think it's to me. Starman is one of the one of the oh the pinnacle perfect comic book series. Yeah. Um, but the way it explored his relationship with her and how they came together, I just thought it was so beautifully written. Um, and that, that's that's definitely a favorite. Another a couple of X Men annuals. X Men annual number six. From 1982, it's a Dracula story. Uh, Claremont writing, of course, and uh, Bill Sienkiewicz doing the art. And uh, the X Men already dealt with Dra- fought Dracula in an earlier issue. Not that not much longer. Not uh, I can't speak anymore. Which was recent in terms of the this annual. But this one, they bring back the Rachel Van Helsing character from the classic Tomb of Dracula series, and uh, they kind of explore what happened to her. It's just a great 
Dracula story involving the, and I'm a huge Dracula fan, so I really enjoyed that. Um, and then also, speaking of Art Adams, X-Men Annual Number 9, which is the second part of the X-Men Go to Asgard oh. storyline um, with the New Mutants, and that was also involved in the New Mutants special that came out of that same time period. Such a fun story, the X-Men, you know, romping through Asgard and dealing with uh, machinations of Loki, and they meet the Warriors 3, and it's just a great adventure story. Um, I think it's Art Adams' art, right? I believe it is. Let, let me, you know what, before I say that, because, you know, his work in comics is wonderful, but it's kind of rare, so let, yeah, me, yeah. let me double-check me on myself on that as I'm saying that. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it is, but I, wanna, I don't want to mislead listeners. Um, let me go to the Marvel database right here. Here we go. Alrighty. Yes, Art Adams. Okay. Oh, and uh, Mike Magnolia was one of the anchors for that. Um, oh, wow. It's, 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 again, Claremont at the peak of his power. It's just uh, some X-Men stories, they can be very dark. Others were just fun, and this one was really fun because it was just such a great romp, and they brought so many aspects of Asgard into it, and it's Art Adams drawing it, so it's a feast. Um, so those are... Those are just some alternates I had off, off the top of my head. Nice. So, Murd, how about you? Anything? Oh, as usual, I've got a whole bumper crop of them. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to go through them quickly. Sure. Um, <laughs> only thing on my list from the 2000s is Justice Society of America Annual Number 1 from 2008. Jeff Johns, Jerry Ordway, Alex Ross cover, Welcome to Earth 2. Oh, wow. How could you Enough not Enough said. Yeah. Power Girl gets to visit the uh, new multiverses version of Earth 2. Um, let's see. Since we're talking about Starman annuals, I've actually got one here, too. I've got the first Starman annual uh, from 1996, which is about the, it's just, it's the shade off on some alien world in the far future telling a bunch of times past stories. And uh, one of them is about Prince Gavin, uh, the alien Starman. Ah, yes. I thought that was pretty cool. And in a similar vein, uh, from that Pulp Heroes line of annuals that Chris mentioned a minute ago, um, Legends of the Dark Knight annual number seven. Shane, if you don't have the in your collection you have to because uh, it's written by James Robinson and it's basically a Starman story with Batman instead of Starman and it's Batman investigating a mystery involving the legendary DC Universe World War One aviator Balloon Buster. Oh, wow. Good story. <laughs> oh, I, I have to read that. Um, wow, let's see. That. Um, that's that's, that's got to be Shane's uh, cup of tea. Yeah, you're not kidding. Um, and I don't know if I know I had it at one yeah, point but I don't that. know if I have it yet. Wow. What number was that? Seven. Heard? Number seven. Okay. I'll write that down. Good tip. All right. Uh, something from uh, DC Vertigo, uh, Swamp Thing, annual number six from 1989. Neil Gaiman writes it, and it's the return of Brother Power the Geek. Oh, wow. Introduced as a uh, puppet nice. elemental, uh, <laughs> growing giant doll bodies all over downtown Miami, I think it was. <laughs> now, there's also a backup story in that annual featuring Floronic Man. Um, Secret Origins Annual Number 3 from 1989, uh, featuring the Teen Titans, George Perez writes and partially draws a cohesive origin story for every incarnation of the team from the 60s through the 80s. That was a tour de force. Um, I love the Eclipso, the Darkness Within annuals DC did, and No Pants does too, <laughs> so I wrote down my two favorites, Flash Number 5 by Mark Wade and Hawkworld Number 3 by John Ostrander. 
Um, Action Comics Annual Number 8 from 1996. It's a Legends of the Dead Earth story featuring a bizarro in the far future, out in outer space. He has no knowledge or memory of Superman or Earth, but he's doing his bizarro thing as the star attraction of an amusement park called Bizarro World. (laughs) That's written by my man Carl Kiesel. Nice. Um, Untold Tales of Spider-Man Annual 96. Oh, that's great. Good pick, Murd. Yep. Well, Chris and I both know what great comics Untold Tales of Spider-Man was, one of the best things Marvel did in the 90s. And that issue was written by Kurt Busiek, of course, uh, with art by Mike Allred. Spidey and the Invisible Girl go on a date. Yeah, it's awesome. (laughs) Awesome. Much to the chagrin of both Human Torch and Namor. So great issue. Hijinks ensue. Plus, that annual contains uh, the recipe for Aunt May's famous wheat cakes. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Great pick, Murd. Great pick. Uh, Thunderbolts annual number, uh, from 1997, uh, that's the first time reveal, uh, the, the, the first revelation of how Baron Zemo went about recruiting his, uh, oh, yes. crack yeah. team of masters of evil to go undercover as superheroes. It's the origins of the Thunderbolts concept, uh, by Kurt Busiek, of course. Um, Silver Surfer annual number six from the 1993 series of new character annuals. Uh, that is the one that introduced Legacy, uh, well, uh, Janice Vell, the son of mm. Marvell to the Marvel Universe. Uh, from Joe Kelly's uh, Deadpool run, we have Deadpool Death, 1998. You guys still with me? Oh, yep. yeah, we're here. Go right ahead. Sorry, just uh, Shane did something to the camera, camera and everything went blurry and strange. Um, so, yeah, in that issue, we learned some of the uh, secrets, for the first time, some of the secrets of uh, Wade Wilson's time in the uh, Weapon X project how uh, he became Deadpool slowly and painfully, and uh, the physical and psychological torment he had to endure along the way, plus Deadpool actually literally flirts with death. Death actually talks to him, which is more than she's ever done for her most devoted suitor, Thanos, so Wade Wilson should feel pretty special about that. Uh, Captain America Annual Number 13 from 1994. This was written by Roy Thomas, with art by his uh, uh, erstwhile, uh, well, one of his collaborators from the All-Star Squadron days, Arvel Jones. It's uh, the entire history of the Red Skull and the second communist Red Skull of the 50s, uh, told more or less from the Skull's point of view. That was a good story. I bought that at a bazaar in a church basement, believe oh, it or not. Uh-huh. Wow. And last but not least, Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 22 from 1988, the first appearance of Speedball. Oh, yes. <laughs> I remember that one. Oh, yes. Was that the uh, Evolutionary War tie-in? I believe so. It was. Yeah. Woohoo! <laughs> All right. <laughs> I remember the Speedball. <laughs> That's great. Comrades in Arms, an outstanding discussion. Yeah. Good picks all the way around, I think. If a man want to do a quick plug for the store. Go right ahead. Uh, this, this should come out before the date. On October 31st, uh, many listeners know that, that a lot of comic shops participate in Halloween Fest. Which essentially is Free Comic Book Day Part 2. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we'll be having out a large amount of free comics for people to enjoy. Uh, we're also doing our, our traditional huge fall sale. Uh, we'll be having 30,000 50-cent books at 10% off 50 cents. We'll be adding thousands of books to those bins uh, you know, the, weeks, the week before the, the event. Adding also to our higher sticker-end books, which are all priced way below a guy. They'll be 10% off on top of that. We've brought in hundreds more used trades over the past few weeks. We have over a thousand used trades in wow. stock now. Most of them are five bucks. Uh, the more expensive ones are fifteen or twenty, but that's you know usually half off, like a, like an archive that's fifty bucks sure. now twenty dollars. 
10% off those low prices, 25% off our new trades, 25% off our magazines. If you come in costume, you get an additional $5 off your overall purchase. <laughs> and first time ever, we're inaugurating the Wild Pig, Pig Auction uh, at approximately 3 o'clock on Saturday, October 31st. We're putting up various items, very low opening bids. You can find all the items at wildpigcomics.com. Among them will be a near mint to mint copy of Tales of Teen Titans 44, the first appearance of Nightwing. Nice. Uh, and also a lot of IDW artist editions will be going up on auction with low opening bids. Uh, we have a hard hero, very unfortunate name, Hawkeye statue. That was a nice series of statues they did uh, in the 2000s. So check out uh, wildpickcomics.com. It's October 31st, 12 to 6, 14 South Michigan Avenue, Kenilworth, New Jersey. Hope to see you there. Nice. Thank you. Very cool. Always love wild pig sales. Thanks, brother. Um, Murd, anything else? Um I'd just like to issue the standard top five disclaimer here. Uh, those of you listening at home, uh, just remember these lists of ours are always 100% arbitrary and subjective and uh, based on what we can remember off the top of our heads Indeed. by the time we sit down to record. Yeah. So, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we might uh, repent of ourselves and uh, make completely different lists uh, two weeks from now. We'll thought weeks. of other things that we forgot to write down this time. So yeah. please be gentle with us. Please don't uh, uh, subject us to any comments of the format. How could you not put annuals x y and z on your lists just uh, instead of doing that please go to the comicforums.com and put down your own top five lists and, and i'm and, glad uh, just, just be gentle with us i'm glad merch you mentioned that because listeners should know that uh, and i'm speaking for myself but i think for a lot of us that i try to read the forms as much as i can within my already busy schedule i always appreciate people's feedback and comments mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and questions and i mean mr weathington you are the guru of our forums. I, I really appreciate all the knowledge he brings in, things we missed or maybe we mispronounced the name or we, we got a fact wrong. So I, I really enjoy just going through the forums and seeing what people have to say because 99% of the comments are, are positive and and, yeah. and and supportive and, and often edifying. Yeah, so, and I like to see what other people yeah. choose for their own top fives when we do yeah. these kind of lists. That's Absolutely. a lot of fun. All right. Um, visit us at comicgeekspeak.com to send us an email. The address is comicgeekspeak at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, the number is 267-702-6642. Stop by The Comic Forums, just as Chris and Adam said, and let us know what your own top fives are. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Thank you to everyone who contributes to the episode. We appreciate it. Thank you to Geek Fuel for sending Absolutely. us the mystery boxes. It's a lot of fun to open them up and see what goodies are inside. And as always, we are uniting the world's mightiest heroes, one listener at a time.